welcome to Purpose Church on this Sunday. Now, Pastor Glenn's not here. He's actually preaching at our Claremont campus. But if Pastor Glenn was here, we know what he would say, right? He would look at all of you and he would say, you all are the spiritual Marines, right? You all are the spiritual heroes. And here's why. Because it is clock change Sunday. It is nasty weather outside right now. And you guys chose to come to church this Sunday. So first off, can you just give yourselves a round of applause? Like you are the heroes more than Captain America or Captain Marvel. Like you guys are the real superheroes. And, and here's the thing, I know how cold it is out there. I, I was preaching at a camp uh, recently in Boston. And uh, when I was out there, it was about 15 degrees, which is near death. I mean, that's awful. And I know people around the country have it way worse. But as a California, Southern California boy, 15 degrees was awful. And I literally remember after every single meal, the dining hall was right here. The chapel was right up there. I had to go up there to preach. I mean, it literally was only from here to like the end of the worship center. But I would literally step out of the dining hall. And this thought went through my mind. Am I going to make it? Like I might die just trying to get up that hill. And so I get it, but you all came and you're here and we're so glad that you are with us. In fact, it's a perfect time for you to come because we're not only beginning a new series here at Purpose Church, but we're beginning the Lent season. The Lent season marks the 40 weekdays leading up to Easter. It's something that the church has been celebrating since about the fourth century. And and in some traditions, you give up eating things or um, you give up a certain task or something that is a normal part of your rhythm as a way of preparing for what Christ did on the cross and in his resurrection. In fact, some traditions give up eating meat, like I mentioned, and one of the reasons they would do that is because it was a way of unifying. It was a way of unifying both the people who couldn't afford meat and those that could over these 40 days to say, we are all sinners, we are all broken. What Christ did, he did for all of us, no matter what kind of season or stage we find ourselves in life. And so the church has been celebrating this. And in fact, historically, Easter Sunday was the day when the church would do baptisms. And so for these 40 days, those that were interested in getting baptized would sort of prepare themselves for what was to come, which is a perfect plug for at Easter at Fairplex this year, we will be doing baptisms. And so if you have never been baptized before, can I strongly encourage you to think about joining us this Easter Sunday at the Fairplex for some baptisms. It is going to be absolutely awesome. Well, not only is it the beginning of Lent, but it's the beginning of a new series called Last Words, where we are going to be looking at the seven last statements, rather, or phrases, the last words that came out of Jesus' mouth during the six hours that he was on the cross. Mark's gospel tells us that his crucifixion began at 9 a.m. and ended at 3 p.m. And so Jesus, being on the cross for six hours, had seven things to tell us. And each week, we are going to focus on one of those statements and discover how what Jesus talked about before his crucifixion was just punctuated and the exclamation point came that at his crucifixion, he was still articulating the same message. And I believe each week that you come here to Purpose Church that God is gonna have a specific encouragement for you, a challenge for you. And so I can't wait for us to kick off this series as we look at the last words. Now, 
What's interesting about last words is that whenever you hear them, whenever you hear them, you tend to lean in, whether it's somebody who's passing away or somebody who you don't think you will see again or at some kind of emotional critical junction in somebody's life. I mean, I think about the Oscars or the Grammys that as somebody is being awarded with something or as they are about to pass away, that we tend to lean in and say, what is it that they are about to say? I was thinking about in my own life, I remember when uh, my grandma passed away. I must have been seven or eight years old. And I remember our whole family was gathered around her bed and she was laying there and she couldn't speak, but my, my grandpa was sitting right next to her and I remember he got down on his knees and he grabbed her hand and he said, Betty, you can go. Betty, it's okay, you can go. I remember just being overwhelmed by the emotion of the experience of what would it take for a husband to say that to his wife. And I remember I just, I just ran out of the room and, and there, was this, uh, there was a living room with a TV and some video games. Anybody remember N64? Do we have any N64 people in the house? That was my original OG gaming system. And I remember I just was playing some N64 because I couldn't sort of emotionally go there. But I remember I was very aware that my grandma had passed away when my mom came out and started to make phone calls to our family members, and as a seven-year-old boy, I remember so vividly that moment. I, I remember when my grandma on my mom's side of the family, when she was passing away, I had one last interaction with her, and our family told us, it's probably the last time that you'll be able to talk with grandma, and I was sitting there talking with grandma, and I said to her, I said, grandma, do you know that Jesus loves you? And she said, with tears in her eyes, she said, I know he loves me. I can feel him with me. You see, we lean into those last words. In fact, I, I found some, some last words from some pretty his, important historical figures. Leonardo da Vinci, on his deathbed in his final days, these were his last words. He said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. This is Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, he hasn't seen my stick figures, but for some reason, his work is not nearly as good as what he had intended for it to be. D.L. Moody, the 19th century preacher and evangelist, he said this. He said, is this dying? Why, this is bliss. There is no valley I have been within the gates. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling and I must go. The reggae superstar Bob Marley. What did Bob Marley say on his deathbed? Here's what Bob Marley said. He said, money can't buy life. Money can't buy life. That's a good one. Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard, who was the philosopher and theologian over at USC, he said, thank you. Just merely said, thank you. Billy Graham, Billy Graham said, he, he borrowed this quote from D.L. Moody. Billy Graham said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I love that. I will have gone into the presence of God. You see, when, when somebody is saying their last words, we choose to lean in. And this Lent season, for the next seven weeks, as we look at the seven last words of Jesus in the last six hours of his life, I'm gonna ask that we would lean in because I think he has something incredibly important for each one of us. And today we look at the word of forgiveness where Jesus on the cross, his very first word is, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. Here's what's incredible about this phrase. 
is that Jesus not only intended it for you and I as the recipients, but he also wants to invite you and I into that kind of life where we would go around forgiving even things that seem so unimaginable and so painful. Jesus' final words here, as we're going to study in a minute, they have a a deep background and context to them. And in fact, I think sometimes because we're 2,000 years removed from what Jesus did that we've forgotten some of the details. And so as Jesus hangs on this cross and says these words, maybe they've lost some of their power. And so for the next few minutes, I want to take us to a deeper place. I'm going to say some things that might cause you to stir emotionally, that might kind of challenge you as we look at what it was that Jesus actually went through, but I think it's essential for us to be emotionally engaged in order for us to actually lean into the words, the last seven words of Jesus, we have to understand what it is that he was going through. You see, Jesus was born in between the years 7 and 4 BC. The great Herod, the king of Judea, was in charge, and and he passed away, and his kingdom was divided between his three sons and his sister. And by the time Jesus grows up and begins preaching and teaching and offering forgiveness to everyone that would receive him, all of a sudden he becomes an enemy of the religious leaders of his day, and he becomes an enemy of the government. And so around the year 29 to 33 AD, the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate finds himself with Jesus right in front of him. Well, how did he get there? It began on Thursday night. On Thursday night, Jesus broke some bread and said to his disciples, to his friends, this this bread represents my body that's being broken for you. And then he takes a cup and he says, the wine in here, it represents my blood that is being poured out for you for the forgiveness of many. And they're going, Jesus, what are you talking about? They've forgotten that since the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was saying over and over and over again, I will be mocked, I will be flogged, I will be crucified, and I will rise from the dead. Jesus said this over and over and over again, and they didn't understand it because it was too miraculous, and it just didn't make sense to them. Well, later that Thursday night, Jesus goes into a garden, and he takes a few of his disciples with me, and he says, guys, I need you to pray for me. In Mark chapter 14, it's actually described to us that that Jesus was so overwhelmed by this, that he was deeply distressed, that he was troubled. Some of the gospels talk about how sweats of blood were pouring out from him because he was in agony. And he told his disciples, he told his friends, he said, guys, I am sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting him. And it was causing him to be anxious and worried and concerned. Have you ever been there before? You have a Jesus who understands what anxiety is like, who understands what it's like to be under so much pressure that you can't imagine anything else. In fact, Jesus prays at one point. He says, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way to save humanity, please do that, but not my will, but your will be done. Well, Jesus is eventually arrested and there's this mock trial put on where they start bringing out some false witnesses to to bear false testimonies about Jesus. And eventually it comes out and it's clear to everyone that Jesus actually believes that he's the God of the universe. And they scream blasphemy and they rip their shirts and And they blindfold Jesus. Now, this is the Jesus who never sinned. This is the Jesus who forgave people, who healed people, who invited all people to his table. 
This Jesus is being spit at and beat. They put a crown of thorns on his head and a robe around him. And they start mocking him and they say, if you're a prophet, if you truly are the son of God, why don't you tell us who's hitting you? And then they strike him in the face. Well, Jesus probably gets very little sleep that night and he wakes up early Friday morning and he's forced to stand before Pontius Pilate, the governor of that day. And Pontius Pilate can't figure out why he's here, but the crowd keeps screaming louder and louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So finally Pilate says, okay, but before you crucify him, flog him. So they would have taken Jesus to this courtyard where mass amounts of people would have gathered around him and they would have stripped him completely naked. They would have wrapped his arms around a giant pole and tied his hands tight. And with his entire back exposed to the audience, there were two Roman guards, one on his left and one on his right. And in their hands, they had a giant whip and at the end of that whip would have been rocks and nails and glass. And 39 times, one after the other, they would have whipped Jesus back, causing immense amount of pain, and his skin would have been torn. He would have screamed out in agony. And it took two Roman guards, because as strong as they were, this was such a laborsome, tiresome task that no one Roman guard could do it on their own. And so two of them would have tortured Jesus and beat him within an inch of his life. In fact, there's many historical accounts of people who were flogged dying in the process. But that's not what happened to Jesus. That after 39 lashes, they untie him and his body falls to the ground. And they throw him something to wear and he puts it on and then he begins to carry his cross this giant wooden beam to the very top of this hill. As we're gonna read in our story, Jesus was so weak at this point that he couldn't even carry it on his own and so someone had to help him. When Jesus finally got to the top of the hill, he he collapsed and one Roman guard would have stretched out his arm behind the giant wooden beam and felt for the depression in his wrist and driven a giant nail right through his wrist causing excruciating pain. They would have stretched Jesus' the other hand over to the other end of the wooden beam and felt for the depression in his wrist and driven another nail right through it into the piece of wood. And finally, they would have put one foot over the other and driven one last final nail through both feet and into the cross. At that point, they would have stripped Jesus naked, lift him up, and he has begun his six-hour slow painful, torturous, excruciating death. I've used the word excruciating a few times intentionally because the Latin word for excruciating is excruciare, which literally means out of crucifixion. By its very definition, the word excruciating has a giant picture of a bloody, weak body being tortured to death. 
But you see, you don't die from crucifixion because of blood loss. You die because of suffocation. And so for six hours, Jesus lifts himself up to take a breath, causing excruciating pain in his feet. He takes a breath, and then he exhales and drops down. And immediately he feels the excruciating pain in his wrist. And for six hours, Jesus is just trying to take in a single breath. And in the middle of that, in the middle of the unimaginable, in the middle of Rome doing what Rome did best to those who were against Rome, Jesus finds the energy and the time to say seven last things to you and to me. And so over the next seven weeks, Purpose Church, let's lean in. Because when Jesus is experiencing the unimaginable, he still has something to say to you and me. And the first thing he wants to say to us has everything to do with forgiveness. If you're the note-taking type, go ahead and write this down. It's in your sermon notes that what we're gonna experience here is that when we did our worst to God, he did his best for us. When we did our very worst to God, he did his best for us. Find me in Luke chapter 23. This story is recorded in all the gospels. The story of Jesus' death is recorded in all the four gospels. In this gospel, we hear the first of Jesus' last words. The backdrop is this, verse 26. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So Jesus was too weak at this point to carry his own cross. And so they put on top of Simon what was probably a hundred pounds or more of this giant wood beam to carry it to the point where Jesus is about to be crucified. Then verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Now, historically speaking, this uh, task of mourning was actually something that you could pay for. I mean, you, you could literally pay for people to show up at your feet funeral or to show up at your deathbed and to literally cry for you. I mean, to prove that you were worth something. If you had a lot of money, you could get lots of people there. But there's no way that's the case here. Because as Pastor Glenn has reminded us often, Jesus, around every corner and at every opportunity, Jesus elevated the status of women. In a culture where women were treated as objects, as property, Jesus affirmed their image bearer nature in God. He affirmed their identity and he invited them to follow him. So it's clear that all the people gathered here, especially these women, that they are, they are mourning because here was a man and not just a man, but here was the God of the universe saying, I have a place for you in my kingdom. Jumping forward to verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. This is where we understand that Jesus is being tried, he's being executed as a criminal. In fact, what Jesus did was pure terrorism back in that day. Because Rome believed that Caesar was God, and so Jesus claiming to be God, proving it in his death and in his resurrection, was of the greatest offense to Rome. And so Jesus is executed, which literally means in the ancient Greek to be destroyed, to be done away with completely. 
But Rome made a spectacle of it to make it clear to every single person, do not cross Rome. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus has just began the six-hour ordeal of his crucifixion. And he somehow has the energy after the flogging and the crucifixion beginning in the middle of taking deep breaths to say our first word, to say our first phrase of the seven that we will hear. And he said this, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I mean, feel the tension in this. Jesus is looking out at the people who have put him on the cross, the people responsible for the pain and the agony and the excruciating ordeal that he is in. And he looks at them and he says, Father, forgive these ones. Forgive these ones that are doing this to me. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. And their response, to roll some dice, to cast some lots, to see who could take some of Jesus' clothes home. Here's perfect, sinless, God Almighty, naked and exposed and vulnerable on a cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. What I want to do for the next few minutes together is I want to break up word by word with you so that we can have a deeper understanding of what Jesus is not only offering them, but what Jesus is offering us. He says, Father, forgive them. The first big idea, and if you're taking notes, it's in your notes. The first big idea is this. Every sin offends God. Every single sin offends God. It's the reason that Jesus says, Father, Forgive them because their sin is offensive to you. And, and sometimes we think, man, if I, if I hurt somebody, if I lie to somebody, if I cheat somebody out of something, if I say that cutting remark to my spouse, if I treat my kids that way, if I don't do the dishes when my roommate want me to, whatever it may be, I, I'm just offending and hurting that person. But scripture makes it clear back in Genesis when God said, do not eat of this tree and if you eat of this tree, you will die. That when we chose to sin, that we deeply offended God. And so every time we sin against God, every time we sin against another, that we are offending God Almighty. It's the reason for me, whenever I've begun to struggle with, whether it's lust or pride or anger or whatever it may be, that I've started this practice that I would invite you into where as soon as the inception of that thought or that idea or whatever it may be, as soon as it comes into my mind, the first thing I say is I say, nope, nope. I just stop it right there and say, God, I'm so sorry. That thought is not what I want. That is not who I want to be. That is not the man that you've called me to be. That's not the husband you've called me to be. That's not the leader you've called me to be. No, Jesus, thank you that you have forgiven that. 
You see, what Jesus did on the cross was offer you and I a way to make right, a way to be forgiven for the ways that we have offended God. And so as sin begins to pour in your life or as those thoughts begin to come in or those actions, whatever they may be, you need to get out in front of them and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I recognize you're not okay with this. I'm not okay with this. I know that this offends you. Father, forgive me. So not only does every sin offend God, but then the beautiful reality, the honesty that God has before us to say, look, in my presence, apart from me, you don't stand up on your own. You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament or read the law, and we think, oh, it's just a, it's a lifeless list of God's bare minimum. That's what the law is. That's not what the law is. The law is God's holy standard. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious, we become aware of our own sin. So you and I, we stand before God aware of our own sin. That it was my sin that put him on the cross. It was your sin. It was the sin of Rome and the Jews and everyone gathered there. The sin of all humanity that put him on that cross. And because my sin has offended God, he's not okay with that. We need to think about that a little bit for a minute. We need to ponder that the, the sin in our hearts, the, the secrecy, the conniving, the manipulation, the exploitation, the lust, the pride, the anger, whatever it may be, that God is not okay with it. Because God wants you to have a righteous relationship with him. He wants you to have a, a righteous relationship with others. He wants you to have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. Which is why I love point two. Point two is this. Every sin can be forgiven. Not only does every sin offend God, but every sin can be forgiven. When Jesus says, forgive here, it's literally an imperative, it's a command. He says, he says Father, we must forgive them. This is who we are, this is what we do. Father, this is why you sent me. This is what... We're about, Father, forgive them. You see, the word forgive literally means to, to release, to let go of. He's saying, God, we are not gonna hold this against them. This is your heart. This is my action on the cross. This is what the Holy Spirit will confirm over and over and over again for all of believers is that every sin can be forgiven. I mean, friends, think about that for a second. That means no matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what things you just hold so much regret for, that what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago not only proved that those things are offensive to God, but that when God looks at a world that was running away from him, he chose to run towards us, and in running towards us, he said, I can even forgive that because that's how much I love you. 
Remember the scene, they're casting lots. Some are mocking him and laughing at him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Because every sin can be forgiven. I mean, historically, the Jews and the Romans put Jesus to death, but spiritually, all of humanity put Jesus to death. And so all of us are responsible for that. But it's this upside-down, beautiful gospel that as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we didn't get to this place where we recognized, oh, this sin has offended God. I'll fix it on my own. And he said, man, great job. No, we were dead in our sin. We were still sinners, And Christ said, I'm going to take the first step. I'm going to lean in and choose to forgive you and do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Brother Lawrence, he has this this powerful quote in in one of the writings about him where he's quoted saying, I'm a loser, I'm full of faults and flaws and weaknesses. I've wronged God in so many ways. I've regretted this greatly. I've confessed it to God and I've asked for his forgiveness. What can I do but abandon myself in his hands to do with me what he wants? But my king is so full of mercy and goodness. Instead of making me feel bad, he hugs me with his love and invites me to dinner. He serves me with his own hands and gives me the key to his treasure. He enjoys me and talks to me and treats me like a favorite child. See, that is, that is unbelievable. That in the same breath that we realize that every sin offends God, Jesus says, and I can forgive that. I can forgive even that offense. And then thirdly and finally, every sin hurts someone. Every sin hurts someone. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. We must. We must let this go and release them and free them. Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It's a way of Jesus saying, they don't understand the gravity of this moment. But the obvious is that what they are doing is hurting. It's hurting Jesus. And the reality of you and I's sin is that as it spills over into the lives of other people, that, that we hurt people. That maybe you have been hurt by someone or maybe you have been the one hurting. And as we begin to understand that to truly have gospel-centered forgiveness means that we understand that we offended God, that we hurt God, that we created distance. And at the first words out of his mouth, as the crucifixion is beginning, his father We must address and answer what they have done to us. And the way we will address and answer what they have done to us is by offering forgiveness. But maybe you're here because you're holding on to unforgiveness. You're withholding forgiveness. And you've seen the way it's wrecked your life. To to illustrate this, I'm going to need some people real quick. I need, um, Josh, come on up here real quick. Where's Mock? Mock, where are you at over there? Can you cover? Kyle, come up here real quick. Uh, Justin, come up on stage real quick. To illustrate this, coming up here, I know I didn't like really prep you guys. Here we go. So I'm going to give you each a rope. Thanks, Justin. 
I'm going to give you each a rope. Here we go. And I want you to hold onto this rope as tight as you can and move with me as I'm moving, okay? So here's what happens. Here's the honest truth. I'll take this one. Come on over here, Mark. Um, here is the honest truth of withholding forgiveness. Is that every time you withhold forgiveness, that if you choose to live a life marked by unforgiveness, you will quickly discover that with unforgiveness comes some really ugly friends. I'm not calling you guys ugly, just saying that, just saying that. We're not calling you ugly, but what comes with unforgiveness is unforgiveness's ugly friends. And you know what their names are? Bitterness, resentment, cynicism, shame, anger, rage, that those are all the ugly friends that come with unforgiveness. And the problem with living in that world is that as you're walking around, as you're interacting with people, as you're interacting with that spouse that hurt you, that offended you, that wounded you, that sinned against you, or that roommate, or that friend, or that colleague, that because of what they've done to you, it begins to follow you everywhere you go because you're continuing to hold on to what happened. And so bitterness and resentment and shame and cynicism and all of them come with you. And so as you try to come with me, guys, as you try to interact with new people, as you make new friends, as, as you talk with somebody or maybe somebody that, you had, that actually has wronged you, what happens is these friends get in the way. Here's what I want you guys to do. You guys are all really tall, so it's going to be perfect. Um, here's what I want you to do is I want you to try to get in the way of Justin and I interacting. So come on over here and try to get in the way of us interacting. So Justin, yeah. can you see me? Justin, hold on. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get to, you guys get up. I'm trying to get to Justin. Okay, Mock, I didn't say hit me, all right? I'm just, <laughs> holy cow. I still have one more sermon to do. Okay. You see what happens with unforgiveness? Is that it's ugly friends of bitterness, resentment, shame, cynicism. They get in the way of every single interaction. And you know what? If you're in that place right now, I know you feel frustrated by that. In fact, you try to connect with people and it just doesn't work because you're so jaded. You're so angry inside that you just say, finally, come on, guys, let's move on. And you move over here. And you know what? It's in your thought life. It's in the interactions you have. And these guys just can't get away. I mean, you're just constantly surrounded by them. And you get in those moments where you go, I just don't want these. Why do these guys keep hanging on to me? Why do they have such a tight grip on me? But then maybe you'll come to the realization one day, and maybe it's now, that bitterness and resentment and shame and cynicism and anger they don't have a hold on you. you. You have a hold on them. And that when you choose to forgive, you let go. You release. You send away. So that as you begin to interact with people, you have freedom again. And this may be part of your past but it doesn't have to define your future. And you'll interact with somebody and maybe as you're interacting with them, they'll say something or they'll do something that, that brings up those old feelings of resentment. And you're like, come on, we're going to the party. Come with me, come with me. And all of a sudden you'll realize the same thing is true again. That resentment and bitterness and cynicism are destroying what could be your future. But what are they rooted in? They're rooted and the reality that you haven't yet forgiven. And as soon as you forgive, you'll find these guys following you every once in a while. You'll feel tempted to 
revisit them and to hold on to them again because it feels safer. But what Jesus modeled for us was that because he's perfect, and here's the thing, we can't do this, I don't believe, as instantaneously as Jesus can. I mean, remember the, the woman Mary? It took her years to get here. So don't think I'm undermining or undervaluing the pain that you've gone through. But Jesus, being perfect, was able to, in that moment, reject the temptation to hold on to bitterness and resentment and shame and cynicism so that we could see him clearly. You see, Jesus could want to make you feel guilty. He could, if he wanted to, hold it over your head, what you made him do, what he did for you, but he doesn't. He forgives. He lets go. Can you guys give these guys a round of applause? And so how are we going to respond? Maybe there's somebody in your life that, that you need to ask forgiveness from. Brindley, whenever we sit Brindley down, she's our like most spirited kid. Whenever we sit Brindley down, just recently I sat her down and I was like, Brindley, you need to apologize to Lila. You can't drop kick her. And so um, we're trying to get her to apologize to Lila, our youngest daughter. And Brindley... She literally goes like this. She looks at Lila and she goes, I'm sorry for kicking you, blah, and then just like walks away. It was like she like threw up the idea of apologizing, right? Or, or the other day she uh, did something to Charlie and, and I was like, Brinley, who do you need to apologize to? And she, she grabbed this blanket and she held it in front of her face so I couldn't see her. She held it in front of her face and then and Charlie was over there and she just went like this with her finger. She went, he started pointing at him, right? You see, it's not about that. It's not about doing it half-heartedly. It's not about just saying, okay, fine, I'll just do it because I'm supposed to. You see, if, if you're in this room, unfortunately, you've been wronged. You've been hurt. And unfortunately, you've hurt and you've wronged others. That the sin of others and your sin has dramatically affected your life. But if we're going to be the kinds of people who, who have gospel-centered lives, who understand that the call to forgive is not coming from a God who doesn't understand it, it's coming from a God who completely understands it, then maybe, just maybe, we'll have the power to do the same. It's why in the New Testament, oftentimes when the command is given to forgive, the evidence for it and the example for it is as Christ did for you. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four, verses 31 to 32. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice, those ugly friends of unforgiveness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And knowing that that is such a scary thing, he says, just as in Christ, God chose to forgive you. I've said this before, Jesus will never ask you to do something for someone else that he hasn't already done for you. There's a, a young man at a camp that I spoke at recently and he came forward and he said, Eric, I've surrendered my life to Jesus. I've received his forgiveness, but I'm really struggling with forgiving my dad. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, a few months ago he left our whole family and we had no idea where he was. We tried to contact him and he didn't communicate back and then 
we saw him post something on Facebook and it said, if you're reading this, I need to let you know I'm leaving town. And if you received a call or a personal message from me telling you this, it's because you're important to me and I love you. But if you didn't, it's because I don't care about you. This 15-year-old boy reads this post from his supposed father who essentially says, you don't matter to me. I mean, what hope do I have to offer this young man? What hope do I have to offer any of you who, as you've experienced such pain and rejection, other than the fact that the only secret I can think of is that your ability to forgive someone else has to be connected to the reality that in Christ, God forgave you. Apart from that, forgiveness for another is virtually impossible. But with that, oh, the impossible actually becomes possible. I want to invite the worship team up real quick. And as I invite the worship team up, I want to invite everyone here in the room to just close your eyes for a minute. And I recognize with a message like this and a conversation like this, that maybe some things are stirring for you. That maybe you're becoming aware right now of how your sin, the sin in your life that is just dominant. I mean, you are so self-centered. It is all about you all the time. You consume as much as you want. You take what you want. You do what you want. You could care less about anyone else. And you're recognizing that that sin doesn't just hurt and offend other people, but it first and foremost offends and hurts God. Or maybe you're in this room And you're recognizing that, you know what, I've never received, I've never received Jesus' forgiveness. I've never begun that relationship. I've learned a lot about him. I've been coming to church maybe for a little while, but I've never taken that next step to say, Jesus, I recognize that what you did on the cross, you did for me, and so I receive your forgiveness. Or maybe your next step is you need to seek forgiveness from someone else. That something that has happened days ago, weeks ago, months ago, years ago, you've never owned up to. You've never been honest about. Or everybody knows it happened and you're just unwilling because of your pride to own the sin that you've caused. Maybe for you that looks like seeking out the forgiveness of another. Or maybe you're in this room and somebody has deeply wounded and wronged you. And unforgiveness's ugly friends have been with you for a decade now. And you want to forgive. You want to let go. You want to experience that freedom that only Christ can bring. And with every eye closed, if you fall into one of those groups. What I'm going to ask you to do is as soon as the worship begins, we've got one last song to share together. There's going to be some pastors and some leaders and some of our prayer team up front here. And we just want to pray for you. 
And you can share with them whether it's surrendering to Jesus for the first time, receiving his forgiveness, or you need help seeking the forgiveness of another, or you need to forgive someone, that we want to pray for you. We recognize that's an emotional and a big decision. And so we would love to invite you to once the music begins, to come on forward and have any of our pastors pray for you and encourage you. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your first word to us on the cross being a word of forgiveness that reminds us that apart from you, there is no hope, that our sin has offended you, and yet your first response to us is, I forgive you. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who want to begin a relationship with Jesus, want to surrender their lives to him, or need to forgive somebody or want to seek forgiveness, that God, as they come forward and receive prayer and as they're encouraged, as they're taking that next step, that God, you would walk with them and they would sense your presence. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.